you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. We are going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 16. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. Genesis chapter 16. A few months ago, I got manipulated into coaching my son's soccer team. I don't know anything about soccer. I don't even know how many people play on a soccer field. I feel confident to coach many sports. This is not one of them. And so uh, before our first game, I knew I needed a game plan. And I knew I couldn't come up with a game plan. So I talked to Phil, our associate pastor, and I said, all right, give me a game plan. So we together came up with a game plan. And then the game began. And within five minutes, we were already down 2-0. And the game plan I thought was brilliant. And yet within five minutes, I was about ready to abandon the game plan. Should I stick with my, or rather Phil's game plan? Or should I abandon it and try something new? I had a plan. The plan didn't seem to be working. Now, it's not just sports. This is life. We go into things, whether school or work or just our days, and we we sort of have a plan. We have an idea of what we're going to do and how we're going to tackle it. And then things go sideways. And so we have to just reflexively decide, are we going to go with the plan or abandon the plan? As a pastor, I see this all the time. So I, I hear maybe someone say, maybe in their 20s, I am just going to marry a Christian, uh, a Christian man or woman of the highest quality and character. And they're convinced that's the game plan in their 20s, but then they're still single in their 30s. And the game plan begins to shift. Or maybe you're like... I'm going to start off every day praising God's goodness. But what happens when you have an autoimmune disorder and every day you wake up with a mind-numbing pain? What started off as a good game plan, praising the goodness of God day after day, decade after decade, it can be easy to want to abandon the game plan. This fall, we're studying the life of Abram in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, which we spoke on about a month ago, Abram gets these amazing promises. Amazing promises. And one of the amazing promises that Abram gets is that his barren wife will bear a child. But years, years have transpired since that original promise. And now Sarai is like in her 70s. Can you imagine if you've been waiting this long? Like the promise of this child is like slipping through her fingers. And so she's tempted in light of her experience. She's tempted in light of looking around saying, God, you're not showing up. She's tempted in light of wondering, God, you must not be able or powerful enough or loving enough or good enough to actually fulfill your promise. I got to change the game plan. And I think in many ways, Abram and Sarai and the temptation to abandon God's game plan is our temptation as well. So the big idea that I'm going to give you 
this morning is simply this. It's simple, and I'm going to try to prove that this is what this text is kind of driving after. Stick to God's plan. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And really, as I do so, I want to point out that there really are two game plans. Uh, You can call it a, a, a married couple's game plan and the better game plan, God's game plan. So starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain a child by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. As he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell Over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So two plans. A married couple's plan, we see that basically in verses 1 to 6, and then God's plan. So let's first look at this married couple's game plan. We see it in verse 1 to 6. Verse 1 tells us all we need to know about the pain, the sorrow, the suffering the plight of Sarai. She could bear no children. And with old age now falling upon her, the promises of God and this particular promise seem to be slipping through her fingers. But Sarah's got a plan. She's got a plan. She's one of those women who, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? Uh, my mother-in-law always says the greasy will gets the grease. Not with Sarai. She's got a plan. She's a take, take charge kind of woman. And so she comes up with this great plan. It's a stupid plan. But to her, it seems like 
an inevitable plan. And she tells her husband there that this is what we're going to do. Since we don't have a child, since we can't have a child, since God has prevented us from having a child, which are all true, Sarah says, how about we nudge God's plan a little bit? God helps those who help themselves, right? And so she's got a plan. I think in some ways, isn't this how we often rationalize our compromises? Well, the plan's simple. Evidently, when they were in Egypt, they got rich. Uh, uh, Abram and Sarai, they, they had gold and silver. We, we read of the, the, the litany of riches that they got while they were down in Egypt, and one of the things that they received were some servants or maids. And so Sarai says, okay, here's the plan. Abram, why don't you marry my maid, Hagar, and have a child with her? That's the plan. Now, this child isn't going to be Hagar's child. It's, if you just read the text, it's clear this is going to be Sarai's child, which is weird to us, but just think of it as an ancient Near East surrogacy program. That's what she's saying. She's saying, okay, I can't conceive, but it technically could still be the child of promise because biologically speaking, it's still going to be Abram's, so no harm, no foul. Well, Abram goes along with it. He takes Hagar as his wife. She gets pregnant according to the plan. And that's when things go sideways. Hagar, who had no choice in any of this, gets pregnant, and then she begins to gloat. You can just imagine as her stomach is growing, just flaunting it. She's flaunting her fertility against Sarai's infertility, lording it over her in this bizarre and tragic triangle. And slowly, Sarai is jealous and angry. And she comes after her husband, doesn't she? Sarai, Sarai goes to Abram and blames him for everything. And in some ways, she's right to blame him. This was a dumb idea, and he should have stopped it. Abram, in response, he sort of tries to wash his hands of any responsibility and says, basically, Sarai, why don't you do whatever you deem is right, whatever you think is okay, why don't you do to Hagar, your servant? I mean, in all of this, Abram's passivity is almost laughable if it didn't make you want to cry because of how tragic the results of this is and the results of generations of husbands who throughout all of history, have just passively let things, let dumb plans keep going. Well, this jealousy, which is now inflamed, jealousy really can be dangerous. And Sarai turns all of the heat of her jealousy and anger on her servant, Hagar, and treats her harshly. It really is you just read it over and over again, verses 1 to 6, is just a tragic story. But this whole interaction, if you just think about it, it's not the first time you've read basically the same story. I mean, this is the story of Adam and Eve, is it not? The first husband and wife. God tells Adam, this is the game plan. Look at this beautiful garden. You get it all. Just don't eat of that one tree. And then Eve's, maybe because of jealousy, I want that, or, or discontentment. She covets the 
fruit of this one tree, and she takes it, and she gives it to her husband, says, I got a better game plan. Why don't we just eat from all the trees? And Abram doesn't do a thing. It's a really old story, and basically, Moses is telling us that not a lot has changed between Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. The cycle goes on. But, but, but I want to point out something, not just the tragedy of the situation, but I want to point out that Sarai, she takes things into her own hands. She, she comes up with an alternative game plan. God had already said, this is how it's going to work itself out. And she says, ah, since my experience is preaching a different sermon, I'm going to take things into my own hands. But she does it to pursue good things, good desires. Like, she wants to have a child. She wants to be a mother. She wants a family. Those are all good, godly desires. And really, the big temptation, I think, for us, or one of the biggest temptations, isn't to just pursue evil for evil's sake. It really is to pursue good things, godly things, but do it in ways that are like shortcuts. I mean, I I think one biblical example of this is Jesus himself. So if you remember, Jesus is fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, and then all of a sudden Satan tempts him. Jesus is hungry, and that's a good thing. To desire food when you're hungry is a good thing. God made us this way. Satan comes to him and says, turn those stones into bread. Jesus refused because Jesus knew something that Sarai didn't know or Abram didn't know, that so often Satan hides his hook in the golden bait of good desires. I'll give you some examples. And we could be here all day. You you, want to, you're like, I want to grow in God's word. I want to understand God's word. I want to learn. All those are good, godly desires. But how easy that can turn into thinking, I'm going to walk into church and this is going to be all about me. Instead of saying, actually, the church isn't just to serve me but I'm also simultaneously meant to serve the church. Hook, line, sinker. Or you could say, I I want a good reputation in my community. A good thing, a godly thing. But that can translate into, well, I'm not going to let anyone in. I'm not going to tell anyone about my weaknesses or my sin because I might lose my reputation. Hook, line, sinker. I want justice, a good thing, a godly thing. We're we're called to pursue justice. But how easily that pursuit of justice can turn into vengeance. You made my life miserable. I'm going to make your life miserable. Hook, line, sinker. Satan loves to cast his line with the golden bait of good desires. And really, I'm stealing this. 400 years ago, one author put it this way. Satan's first device, quote, to draw the soul to sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that will flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the misery that will certainly follow in committing the sin. Sarah, I wanted a good thing. Abram wanted a good thing. They wanted to see the promises of God come to flourish, but they went about it in the wrong way. 
And just look at the mess that they have on their hands as a result of this. Just look at the consequence for their sin. Hagar, verse 6, runs away. And she runs towards Shur, which is near Egypt. So it's pretty clear she's running home. Can you blame her? I mean, just put yourself in Hagar's shoes for just a moment. She's a slave, separated from her family. It's evident here that she's abused. And and in many ways, we see this grammatically or literarily. Did you notice that when Abram and Sarai talk about Hagar, they never use her personal name. They always just refer to her as the servant. If you want to depersonalize someone, you call them an it. And that's basically what Abram and Sarai are doing. I mean, Abram looked at her physical body, but he never saw Hagar for who she really was. She was just a pawn in their plan, a means to their end, a shortcut to the promises of God. Just just put yourself in Hagar's shoes. She's physically vulnerable too as she's going to Egypt. She's a woman and she's a pregnant woman. Now, pregnancy is a a moment of celebration, a a moment of honor, but all pregnancy meant for her is more social isolation. And so here she is. She's alone. She's vulnerable. She's a foreigner in a strange world. She's traveling a dangerous road. She's insignificant as someone can be. She has no hope, no shot, a voiceless, nameless blip on the map. No one's going to miss Hagar. Can you blame her for running? Maybe you you are here today and you feel a bit like Hagar. Abram and Sarai never really saw her. That wasn't in their game plan. Sometimes we can have our eyes so far out into the future about what we want. Sometimes we can have our eyes set aflame by what we want or need or these passions that we don't see what's right in front of us. Our wants can consume us. Now, as messy as this is, this is pretty messy, right? Look who shows up. Look who's got a better game plan. Notice, though Abram and Sarai don't see Hagar, someone does see in all of this. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. Now, there's debate. Is the angel of the Lord uh, a theophany, an appearance of God, the, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, or just a messenger to speak on behalf of God? I have a personal opinion, but in many ways, it doesn't matter if this is God speaking or if this is an ambassador speaking on behalf of God. The most important thing is that someone hears and someone sees Hagar. And not only that, but look at the amazing blessing bestowed on Hagar. Look there at verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Sound familiar? It should sound very, very familiar if you remember chapter 12. This sounds eerily familiar with God's promised blessing of Abram. Really, she's the only woman to get this sort of blessing in all of your Bible. It's a high blessing. 
And then the angel of the Lord gives this prophecy informing the gender, the name, and the character of this child. Her son's going to be a little bit wild, isn't he? He's going to live in conflict. God comes to Hagar and intervenes, and yet, often when God comes and intervenes, it doesn't mean that the mess goes away. Hagar's going to have a big, 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 big family. But it's not going to be without its challenges. But then also notice, uh, back in verse 9, the angel of the Lord directs Hagar back to Sarai. Do you see? Do you notice that? Go back and submit to your mistress. Now, before I explain what this means, I want to explain what this doesn't mean. This is not a text you can throw or use to say that you should stay in an abusive relationship. If there's verbal, emotional, physical abuse, that is sin. It's egregious sin, and I want to encourage you to talk to someone. That's not what this is saying. Actually, it's the exact opposite. The exact opposite is what God is actually saying. So the angel of the Lord is directing Hagar to go back to Sarai and Abram because he's already said, I'm going to promise to protect you and your family. The angel of the Lord is saying, go back. Your child is going to be safe. I will bless you. I will protect you. And to prove this, the angel says, I've already named your child. The child's name is going to be Ishmael, which means God hears. So just think about this as Hagar goes back. Every time she yells for Ishmael, every time she puts Ishmael on timeout, which probably for this guy is going to be a lot, every time maybe he gets bullied on the playground, any time Ishmael is heard or comes out of her mouth, she's going to remember something, a story, an experience vividly. God looks at her. God hears her. God sees her. God intervenes on behalf of her. Well, how does Hagar then respond to all of this? Hagar does something really unique. Really, no one else does this, what she does. She names God. Did you notice that? She names God something very, very true and very, very kind of experientially true to her. She names God the God who sees, the God who looks at me. You see how God's game plan is so different than our game plan? What was cast off, God's bringing home. What was really messy, God says, I got a plan to use. What was loss, God says, is gain. I think so often in our pain and in our suffering, in our sorrow, in our confusion, we assume God is distant. After all, the the sort of acuteness of pain that we experience is more real to us than the reality of God's presence. And yet, as we look at Hagar and Genesis 16, it reminds us that there is no such thing as wasted pain. There is no such thing as searing solitude. God sees it all. From the rejection on the playground to the loneliness of a bedroom from the pain of infertility to the heartbreak of the prodigal and all the way to the darkness of addiction, God sees it all. We might walk away 
but God doesn't walk away. He, well, his name is the God who sees. Now, maybe you're like, well, that's great, but that's not my reality. I like the idea of that, that that God is ever-present, that God sees, that God knows, that God hears my every cry, but what about if you've been praying year after year after year and you've just experienced silence? Maybe like Hagar, you want to run. Maybe like Sarah, you want to scheme. Maybe like Abram, you just want to throw up your hands and give up. Whatever direction your heart is prone to wander, I want to suggest that though you can say many things about Christianity, you can say many things about God, but there is one thing that the Christian gospel makes very, very, very clear. God is present in the midst of our sorrow. Or let me put it this way. Wherever you're at with Jesus, whether you've been walking with him for a while and you know lots about him or whether you know nothing about him, if the Christian gospel is true, then one thing is certain. God cares about our pain and he is present in the midst of our sorrow. Let me explain. So our our, our story ends in, in Genesis 16 with Hagar giving birth to a son. But centuries later, another woman, another blessed woman, would give birth to another blessed child. Only this child would be God incarnate, God with us. His son's name wouldn't be Ishmael. This son's name would be Jesus. God saves. But just think about the Christian gospel in its totality. There's one thing that marks the Christian story. God left his home in perfect, peaceful, glorious heaven and was born in rejection. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. And his first experience was being born in a manger. And you'd think that the most elite, the most wealthy would come to see him, but the only one who comes to see him are some shepherds, nobodies. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. And then the king says, I'm going to kill every child born this year. And he's got to escape to Egypt just like Hagar. And though he escapes with his life and his family, many children didn't. And this is the God of the universe we're talking about. And then when things quiet down, he goes back with his family to Israel. But did things get better for him? No. He's rejected. He's laughed at. And for his biggest crime, for telling people the truth, for telling people what they didn't want to hear. Was it any safer for him when he started hanging out with the religious elites? Not really. Eventually, he was arrested on some trumped-up charge, and this is the God of the universe. He's mocked by soldiers. After being arrested, he is then put on a cross, the most shameful torture device known to man, and this is the God of the of the universe. And then, in all this, what does this all even mean theologically? Not just the physicality of it, not even the emotions of it, not even the psychology of it, but what does it mean spiritually? Well, he takes on the sins of all of humanity on himself, even though he never sinned at all. He takes on our evil, our sin, our brokenness, and it's placed on 
Jesus. And this is the God of the universe we're talking about. So say what you want about Christianity. One thing I think is certain, if God didn't care, he wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have come. I mean, Hagar is not the only one who cried out to God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why me? This isn't fair. Jesus on the cross cried out those same prayers, but Jesus knew that God had a plan, and he had submitted himself to that divine plan. No shortcuts when it came to Jesus, because God's got a plan. I mean, God could have sent Moses or like an angel. God sent himself. What other religion is there where God would stoop this low? I think it's clear that Jesus, say what you want about Jesus, but one thing is clear. The Christian gospel suggests that God is present in our suffering. Why else would he come and experiencing so much himself, if not to elevate us out of it through faith and trust in him. And in many ways, the end of chapter 16 ends with Hagar doing the very thing that this angel of the Lord tells her to do. She doesn't look to her own game plan. She doesn't take things into her own hands. She submits to the game plan and she goes home. That's how chapter 16 ends. With her obeying the angel of the Lord, she goes back. She gives birth. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for her to go back? I'm guessing she could have come up with 16 better game plans, but she didn't. She knew God's game plan, and that was enough. After all, she knew that whatever she would go through when she got back, whatever experience would befall her, she knew that she had someone who would see her sorrow and be with her in the midst of her sorrow. All right, I got, I got to park the car, so let me just park the car with this. All of us are tempted in many ways, and all of us are tempted to take shortcuts in the Christian life. Stick to the game plan. The game plan is right here in God's word. Stick to the game plan. Even when it doesn't feel like it's working, even when your experience tells you, abandon the game plan, even when you look around and you're like, well, the people who aren't following God seem to be more blessed than I am, stick, stick to the game plan and keep sticking to the game plan. Follow God's word. Faith is nothing other than the dogged loyalty to God, even or especially when things don't make sense. God's got a plan. Let's be a church that sticks to it. God, I, I thank you for all that you're doing in and through this world, particularly right now through this congregation. 
for the, the so many of the stories that have come to faith in you, who have followed you through sorrow. And Lord, I do pray that wherever anyone is out, whether they're in a, a season of praise or a season of trial or a season of sorrow, I pray, Lord, that they would experience in a new way your presence. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.